Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks on today's show, we are pleased to have our interview with Gail Pooley. Hey, Ron, how are you doing? I'm great, Ed. This is wonderful. My favorite book of the year, and we get to interview both authors. So. I know, it's going to be great. Well, let's get Gail right on here. So I'm going to quick read him in so we can get going on the conversation. Gail L. Pooley is an associate professor of business management at Brigham Young University, Hawaii, which a lot of people don't know about, but good for him. Uh, Dr. Pooley earned his BBA in economics at Boise State University. He did graduate work at Montana State University and completed his PhD at the University of Idaho. His dissertation topic, which I might ask him about, was on the knowledge acquisition preferences of CEOs of the Inc. 500. He has published articles in Forbes, National Review, HumanProgress.org, and many other places. Dr. Pulley is a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute and serves on the board of HumanProgress.org. He is also a member of the Mount Pelerin Society. Ron, this is two Mount Pelerin Society members in the last three weeks. Yes, Tony. That we yeah, have. Wow. This is absolutely That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're really pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Gail Pooley. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Great to be on your program. Thanks for having me. Well, first question I have for you is: Did you and, and Marian Tupi celebrate the arrival of the eight billionth human a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, absolutely, we did. Absolutely. <laughs> The whole, the whole thesis, of course, being that the more people, right, the, mo the more wealth that we're going to create. So we'll talk more about that. And um, we want to concentrate on other aspects of the book we had Marion on uh, a couple of months ago. But just for to, to level set for everyone, could just give a quick overview of the notion of time prices for our audience. So here's the idea is we buy things with money, but we really pay for them with our time. Uh, so I walk in to buy uh, a loaf of bread and it's, uh, it's uh, you know, or I, I go buy a pizza and it's $20. And I think, well, I'm earning $20 an hour. So that pizza is really going to cost me one hour of time. And so thinking in time versus thinking in money offers a number of different advantages. Um, you know, the first advantage is, is time prices because it's this ratio. The equation's real simple. It's it's what's the money price divided by what's your hourly income. And so you're it actually contains more information than just a money price because because if prices go up and down, it just says, well, the price of that thing just went up and down. Uh, that's the problem with CPIs. It just tells you how much uh, prices are moving up and down. It doesn't tell you about affordability. And affordability is really a function of well, what's your income? Because if your income doubles, uh, it's like everything's on sale for 50% off, right? So being able to do a time price, actually a time price contains more information than a money price because it's a ratio of your income. Uh, the other big advantage is 
that when innovation occurs, when we have innovation, it shows up not only in lower prices, but it shows up in higher incomes. So a time price more fully captures innovation because it's it's it looks at those two numbers. Uh, another advantage is uh, we can completely transcend this problem of uh, you know CPI adjustments and GDP deflators because those are they're pretty subjective. There can be contention over them, so we can just jump right over the top of those, and it allows you to go to any place on the uh, any place on the planet at any time with any currency and figure out the time price. I can go to France in 1850 and figure out what the time price was for a loaf of bread. And I can then compare that time price to a time price of a loaf of bread today. So I don't have to worry about the currency. I don't have to worry about um, any of those things. I go to this universal time and begin to measure. The, uh, the other advantage is time is this universal constant. Unlike uh, money, you can't inflate time. You can't counterfeit time. It's it's constant and it's continuous. And people have this intuitive sense of what an hour is. And of the seven measurements that we use in science to measure things, six of those go back to time. So the idea is, can we move away from money to time? In economics, we've been we've been trying to measure things with money. Can we measure things with time? I think it's going to be more scientific if you can do that. And then the last thing that we think about is time is this also has this sense of equality. Each one of us, we get 24 hours in a day and uh, you can't buy time. <laughs> if that was true, Elon Musk would never die. You can't buy time and you can't really sell your time to someone else. So if you think in time, uh, versus money, it also leads you to a different perspective when it comes to equality uh, or inequality. So if we all have 24 hours in a day, well, what do you get to do with your 24 hours versus what do I get to do versus what does Elon Musk get to do? And when we think about it that way, we suddenly realize that time inequality is dramatically decreasing because people are, are enjoying much more time in their 24-hour day than they have they've ever done in the past so we're all experiencing this increase in time abundance as well this freedom to now do other things with our time so that's a that's a real short answer to your question no that's a great succinct <laughs> answer to, to to bring it to to where i want to go and one of the things when we were emailing back and forth today talking about being on the show you mentioned that one of the things that you were um, mostly in charge of with this book were some of the box exhibits that go through some of these details so one of the ones that just <laughs> it made me chuckle and laugh but it's also just an amazing example is breakfast the idea of the, di the difference in yeah. breakfast from 1919 to 2019 and I'm, i'll give you the highlights and then i'll ask you to expand on it yeah. the, the time price of a breakfast fell by 89.5 percent you could buy point <laughs> five breakfasts in in um in 2019 for that you could in 20 in 1919 for an average of 854 percent increase in yes <laughs> so this is just a, a, a an example talk about what inspired you to say all right now we're going to do the breakfast price where, where did you come up with that you know we started looking at these prices and, and we just realized that we've, we've the stuff used to be really expensive <laughs> used to be really, really expensive. And 
And uh, you don't realize that unless you, you broaden your perspective. And, and that's really what you have to do. That's what we, we did in the book is, is look, there's, and Julian or Jordan Peterson makes this observation. I think this is like his rule number four, where he says, look, you're better off to compare yourself to who you were yesterday instead of who someone else is today. So if you're looking around comparing yourself to somebody else today, you're, you're always going to be disappointed because there's somebody that's smarter, better looking, richer. You're always going to be disappointed. But if you compare yourself to who you were yesterday or your parents or grandparents, it's like you can be nothing but profoundly grateful because you are you are just astonishingly rich compared to who they were. So we kind of begin with that by saying, well, let's go back in time because it really comes back to these time prices. Once you've figured out time prices, then the question is, what's happened to the time price over time? You know, how much time did it take you to, to earn the money to buy uh, a pound of bacon in 1919? And how much does it cost you to do the same thing today? If you spent the same amount of time to earn the money to buy a pound of bacon in 1919, you get like 10 pounds today or more. And this is for like an unskilled worker. It's not... Uh, you know, it's like a basic person starting their first job. So you've had this tremendous increase in bacon abundance. And so we just, <laughs> we expand and says, well, how about eggs? Well, we had date on day eggs. And says, well, let's look at all these kind of breakfast items and put them all together in a basket and say, I'm going to go buy these things for breakfast in 1919. I'm going to go spend the same amount of time it took me to buy breakfast in 19. If I spend that same amount of time today, how much would I get? Well, you get like Nine or ten times more. I mean, it might explain why <laughs> we're so much larger than people were in 1919, right? Uh, but right. Well, well, I think it, it illustrates this idea that look, if you look back in time, the big inequality has been us against our parents and grandparents, <laughs> right? That's the inequality. I mean, we're like yeah. 58 times richer than somebody in 1850 than than. Uh, you know, we're 50, 60 times richer in terms of this abundance. It's so funny you mentioned parents and grandparents because I had this thought this morning. I have one of the my, I have a, a an English muffin for breakfast most mornings, and uh, I noticed that the price of the English muffin that was four dollars and fifty nine cents. And I have a distinct memory of my grandmother saying when she same Thomas's English muffins. I can't believe these are a dollar twenty nine. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and but when I think about it, compared to myself and my my grandparents, it I mean it must must have it takes me seconds to to, to earn four dollars and and fifty nine cents. Where for them that was maybe a, a fifteen minutes worth of work. Right, <laughs> right. You know, uh, I remember my grandpa when I was a little kid. He would always he he loved to kind of complain about. The price of Hershey bars, he says, he'd always say, when I was a kid, they were only five cents. <laughs> and I say, okay, grandpa, that's true, but you were only making 10 cents an hour. <laughs> so a Hershey bar cost you 30 minutes. Yeah, today they cost a dollar, but I'm making $20 an hour, grandpa. And so a Hershey bar cost me three minutes, cost you 30 minutes, only cost me three minutes. So we're a lot better off today than we were when you were a kid, right, grandpa? <laughs> No, <laughs> yeah. I can tell the answer. They'll say no. <laughs> yeah, they say yeah. 
But but part of the the answer to this is is uh, what is called knowledge stacking, right? This this notion idea that we can we can pass knowledge on to future generations, and we stack knowledge upon knowledge upon each other, not brick upon brick, that you know, capital so to speak, but knowledge upon knowledge. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it goes back to this this first idea that we made this kind of we made this mistake in economics where we began counting atoms with money. And what we what we claim is that we should move beyond atoms and money to knowledge and time. And because we've we've got the same number of atoms on the planet uh, today that we've always had. And what is the difference between our day and the Stone Age? As George Gilder says, it's entirely due to the growth of knowledge. So uh, you think about it this way, there are really no natural resources. What we have is we have this material world, and we when we add knowledge to those atoms, that's when they become resources. That's when they become valuable. And what we notice also is this really interesting thing about knowledge is that when you add knowledge to something, you make it more valuable, but you also make it more abundant, which means you get more of it, and it's cheaper. It takes you less time to be able to, to, uh, to earn the money to buy it. So uh, this idea of focus in on knowledge, and it kind of goes back to George's other, you know, we, we talk about George, he was, he was, uh, he wrote the forward to our book, because he was really inspiring to us in terms of these three propositions that he offers. He says, wealth is knowledge, uh, growth is learning, and money is time. From those three propositions, you can derive a theorem. And that theorem is, you can measure the growth in knowledge with time. And that's what we operationalized in our book. We developed this framework and says, well, let's go measure time prices. And when uh, when something becomes requires less time, you basically the reason that's happened is because you've discovered some new knowledge. Um, Jordan Peterson, we, we had this really nice chat with him, and he said, uh, look, if you can make the same amount in half the time, uh, you're twice as smart. You've doubled your knowledge. And that's that's absolutely true. So time prices allow us to capture this growth in knowledge that's appearing. Um, you know, it's kind of all over the planet. And you got billions of people that are discovering these little bits and pieces of knowledge. And they they end up showing up in markets when organizations take all these little bits and pieces, create products, and then they go to the market with it. That's where we we then experience that increase in knowledge and time prices attempt to capture that growth in knowledge. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. We're up against our first break. However, we want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, is sponsored by a couple of different folks, but one of them is Mark Gandy at CFO Bookshelf. At that a certain level, you can get a shout out like Mark just did. Go to cfobookshelf.com for more on him. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with uh, Gail Pooley. He is the co-author, along with Marion Tupi, of Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. And Gail, I guess that's where I want to start. I was just watching a video this morning about, uh, you know, it started out that we live on a finite planet, you know, with finite resources. And you write in 1800, the world population was more or less about a billion we just had our eighth billionth baby born. Why should we? Why shouldn't we despair that? I mean, why? why um, I guess my question is, why should we celebrate that rather than despair that? Well, back to your original quote there from from Thanos, right? In Infinity War, where he says the universe is finite, our resources are finite. Well, the first part of his statement's true. Uh, we do live on a planet with finite number of atoms. The second part, however, is not true because resources are a function not of atoms, they're a function of knowledge. And we do not seem to be hitting any kind of limit in terms of the discovery and creation of knowledge. And then this other feature that we have is this ability to share knowledge with non-rivalry. Uh, Paul Romer makes this observation, look, when I, when I share my knowledge with you, I haven't lost it, I've doubled knowledge. You come up with something, you share it with me, you've doubled the amount of knowledge on the planet. So knowledge has this ability to, to, to create value, right? It's the knowledge that we add to things that give them the potential to create value. And then when we take those products to a market, that's where we determine how valuable that knowledge is. So that's this crucial role of markets is it lets people figure out if they've really truly discovered something that's 
new piece of knowledge that's valuable. So this process of intelligizing atoms, and we use atoms as this is this foundation element, but you can think of it as a, a piano. A piano's got 88 keys. Uh, well, how many songs are, can you do with 88 keys? Uh, I tell my, ask my students, it's a trick question. Uh, how many songs are in a piano? And it's actually the answer is zero. There's no songs in a piano. The, the songs are all in the minds of human beings. But that approach is, you know, I mean, it's infinite. Uh, you know, I mean, not all songs are created equal, and that's why markets are essential to be able to determine the value of this knowledge that you discover. But you can take a fixed number of atoms and create infinite value out of those atoms. And that's why you have to go back to where does this knowledge discovery and creation begin? It begins with individual human beings that have the freedom and the time and the resources to get on these learning curves and start this discovery process and the sharing process, and also the consuming process. When you consume knowledge, you create more knowledge. Uh, when you use a product, you're constantly figuring out new ways to use that product. You think about the iPhone. When it was first launched, Steve Jobs said, uh, we're going to have some, you know, he talked about the phone and talked about the, the music. And then he said, we're in the browser. And he says, we're also going to create some new apps for this thing. And initially, he wanted Apple to be the only uh, place that was going to create apps. And somebody convinced him to open that platform and let's see what happens. Well, how many millions of apps do we have out there today that people have been able to develop that, that Apple, you know, Jobs had no idea that somebody was going to develop. So if we're in favor of innovation, which is really how we lift one another out of poverty, we've got to be in favor of the source of that innovation, which are individual human beings that have this freedom to act on their imaginations. So being able to add more people in this process that can produce and discover knowledge has to be a good thing. Yeah, and you and I'm so glad you brought that up because you know the you guys have quantified Gilder's insight that wealth is knowledge and growth is learning. And you point out that we can buy 252% more than we could in 1980 through time pricing. That Does that mean we're 252% smarter? I think it actually means we're smarter than that, even smarter than that, because we're just looking at this narrow field. That was the one data set that we begin with was uh, 50 basic commodities. So uh, how I met Marion initially is I saw a tweet on, I saw a little uh, article that he'd written on, and I saw it on Twitter. So I reached out to him. He'd written this article, and it was kind of an update to the Simon Ehrlich bed, if you remember that one. Mm -hmm. And it was like they, uh, Ehrlich picked five metals, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten, and they bet on this real price, what was going to happen over 10 years from 1980 to 1990. And Ehrlich lost the bet. He writes write this check. And uh, so our question was, well, would Simon or Ehrlich win that bet today? And there were two criticisms of that bet. One is it was only five commodities, you know, and Simon was lucky. Well, Ehrlich picked the commodities. Simon didn't. And the other criticism, it, was, it, it only covered 10 years. So we said, well, why don't we expand it. So we went out and expanded it from five to 50. And what we said are, what are the 50 basic commodities a person would want to have if they went to a, 
to an island someplace, <laughs> what would they need? Well, you want energy, you want food, you want materials, you want some metals. Uh, and so the World Bank actually tracks the prices of all of these commodities. And they go back to 19, uh, actually 1960, they have some pretty good data. So we went to the World Bank, found all these commodities, uh, got the nominal prices, uh, estimated what, what global GDP per hour was. So we had the the denominator to do a time price and figured out all the time prices of all these commodities. And that's when we, uh, you know, we expected and we said, well, let's start in 1980. They had 50 good uh, data sets back to 1980 and said, well, let's start in 1980, that same year that they had the bet and go to 2018. It was a couple of years ago when we did this. And we expected to find at least one of those 50 commodities that had become more scarce. And so we were, first of all, we were really surprised that none of them had become more scarce and that the average of all of these 50 commodities had dropped by like 71%. So it's like, wow, for the time it took you to buy one of these things in 1980, it's only you know 40 years ago, you get 3.52 of them today. That's on the individual personal level. So... I get 3.52 for the same amount of time. If I spent the same amount of time, I'd get 250. You know, if I go from one to 3.52, that's a 252% increase. So that's how we get that rate of increase. And then you can then you can take those numbers and figure out what the compounded annual growth rate was. And it says, well, it looks like you're growing at about three to four percent a year. Well, if you can grow at three and a half percent a year, you're gonna double, you're gonna double every 20 years. And so we start seeing these kind of this data and it's like, this can't be right. And it's like, no, it is right. <laughs> you know, we kept checking and rechecking and having other people look at it. And it's like, uh, this, is, this is pretty astonishing. And then you have to remember at the same time, what was happening to global population. We went from four and a half billion people to almost 8 billion people over this 40 year period. So, uh, looks like we got a little bit of a break. Uh, no, go, go ahead. We got you want to keep going? Done. Okay, Couple so minutes, sure. here's a way to think about it. the analogy is the size of the slice in a pizza and then the size mm -hmm. of the pizza. So the slice is your individual personal resource abundance, and the size of the pizza is when you put everybody's slices on the table and see how big the pizza is. Well, you've got everybody's individual slice getting larger, but you also have more people. So you got more slices. It's as if these people that are being born are not only bringing pizza for themselves, they're bringing pizza to share with everybody else. So on a global scale, you take the individual abundance, how it's growing, and you multiply that times the population. And that tells you, you're getting this boom, boom effect on two dimensions. More individual slices are getting bigger and you're getting bigger you're getting more slices. So the pizza, the global resource abundance is doing this. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just growing phenomenally. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, the, I, there's a story about the British chemist, Michael Faraday, and he was asked about a hated academic of his, is he always wrong? And he said, no, he's not that consistent. But Paul Ehrlich seems to be pretty consistently wrong. I mean, even forget the bet, look at his books. I, I, I guess just as an academic, Gail, what do you, how do you account for that? How can a guy be consistently wrong and still have 
all these honorifics thrown at him. Ron, you know, being a professor is a beautiful profession because you can never have to, you can say anything you want to and never really be held accountable for it. Never have to say you're sorry. You can publish, you can do all this stuff and you never have to really pay the cost of being wrong. And that's, that's, you know, that's the deal. And, and I think, uh, uh, once again, uh, you know, uh, Paul, it's like, look at the facts, Paul. Uh, that's what changed Julian Simon's mind. That's what changed Thomas Sowell's mind, the facts. And um, Yeah, Thomas Sowell used to be a communist, even as he sat through Melton Friedman's class, as he told us. But, well, Gail, this is wonderful. Uh, Unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Ed mentioned our Patreon channel. Do check that out at patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Find a mind at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is once again, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Uh, our, the author is Gail Tooley. Uh, to, I'm sorry, I said Gail Toopy. Imagine that. Yeah. Gail Pooley and Marion Toopy. Uh, Marion's been on and we are, have the pleasure of having uh, Gail on today. So I have an answer to Ron's question because the, uh, one of the things I look at, Gail, is the negative reviews. All right, of a book. I, I, I often will buy a book based on the negative reviews alone. Yeah, yeah. Good idea. So here, 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 here is a negative review of your book. And I'm, the, 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 I, there, there are two. This is the first one. We'll be able to dismiss this one quickly. It's true that a growing population will create superabundance. 
up to a certain point. But in any bounded system where resources are finite, it's a temporary phenomena, parabolic with diminishing returns. Uh, it, we see this in ant colonies, collective species, right? Six, he's, this is the last part of the, 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 the critique. 600 pages underpinned with a faulty premise. And I think, did you not read the first chapter? <laughs> Where, where, where he, we dismiss the idea. This review is based on a faulty premise because he says right in it, where resources are finite. Yeah. <laughs> and your, your premise that you're making is that's not the way to think of resources. You know, and that's, that's kind of where Ehrlich made his mistake too, because right. he, he came to the, he came to the table with his background in biology. He was an insect. He was a butterfly uh, specialist in, you know, he, he would use, uh, experiments conducted in the insect animal world and try to apply it to human populations. Well, you know what? Ants don't innovate. <laughs> what? Ants, ants don't innovate. You know, uh, human beings, on the other hand, we have this capacity to imagine things and then act on those things and test those things out, share them with other people, and then keep those things through generations, as Ron said, or, or one of you said about this idea that we can add knowledge, and knowledge can stay within our uh, within our uh, civilization. Ants, uh, insects, rats, uh, anything that's used to try to to model human behavior, you've you've missed this fundamental element that why we're so much different than any other species on the planet. Um, you know, back to this idea that that we live on a, a planet with fixed. We do live on a planet with a fixed number of atoms, but atoms are not resources. Economics is not about atoms. Economics is about knowledge. It's the growth of knowledge that we we really are curious about, and how people create value for one another in an economy. We go out and discover knowledge, share that knowledge with other people, and we have this reciprocity in markets that allow us to to discover and share. And that's what lifts us out of poverty is people that are free to innovate. And if you have more people and you have more freedom to innovate, you're going to have this increase in knowledge, which if wealth is knowledge, then everybody becomes more and more wealthy every day. Not it's at the expense of somebody else. We all enjoy that increase in knowledge because it's non-rivalrous. And, and I think that's really the, the key because, you know, ants do put re resources or uh, in, into seeking um, opportunity. They, they, a certain percentage of ants don't follow the pattern. They are off looking for other, other additional food sources, right. but they don't, they don't innovate and say, how do we create a new food source? <laughs> and, and, and they don't trade. That's the other they, thing. They don't trade. They don't trade. And part of, part of innovation is... Uh, you know, as Adam Smith would say, is you begin with trade and specialization. Allow people to trade things. It allows me to specialize, you to specialize. Now, we see some degree to, of that in, in the animal world where, you know, you know, you have ants that are the, the fighter ants and you have the, the bees that do certain tasks, but they don't really uh, trade with one another and then specialize. And it's really when I focus on doing one thing, that's when this specialization benefit starts to emerge because I get faster at it and I come up with new ideas about how to replace my manual labor with a machine that can do that. So human beings do that. Uh, 
And then we also <laughs> work with comparative advantage, mm -hmm. which means I don't have to do everything. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, because my opportunity costs are, our opportunity costs are different, we can actually let somebody else do something for us that allows us to do something that's more valuable for us. And they don't have to be very good at it. They just have to have a lower opportunity cost than, than I do. And suddenly it's like, now you get all this cooperation that can occur. And, uh, and then we have this ability to think out into the future. Um, you know, we can think into the, we can take ourselves into the future, look at the consequence of things. A causes B, B causes C, C causes D. And then we can come back to the present. And that ability to do that also gives us this advantage in terms of innovation and choice and anticipating events. The reason that climate-related deaths have fallen by 99% over the last 100 years is because we've been able to figure out how to adapt. We're very clever and resourceful uh, species. And uh, that ability has let us convert these things that have been liabilities into assets. You know, oil, when it was first kind of discovered, it was like this black, dirty, smelly stuff that ruined crops and it would catch on fire. It was a huge liability. And because of knowledge of uh, people looking at it and thinking about it, they've been able to take this crude oil and convert it to all of these different useful products. And it's the same crude oil, but it's knowledge that's made it valuable. And why should we expect that knowledge creation to stop when we've never had more power to discover and create knowledge than today with a, with a number of people on the planet, the time that we have, the freedom, the resources, the connectability. We got 8 billion people on the planet and 7 billion of them have some kind of a smartphone, you know, where we can all connect with each other, not only connect with each other, but then connect to the world's kind of information that's been stored digitally. And it's basically, you know, the cost is almost zero. It's like, wow, you are, you are, you've created this huge learning machine now that that should be able to just go exponential on knowledge discovery. There's a great story in the book about that. I won't ask you to go through it, but it's for those of you who do have the book, uh, Box 8.4, which is calculating the calculation cost, which I think is just where, where you compare Buzz Aldrin going to the moon and using a slide rule <laughs> to... <laughs> To the, the 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 iPhone 12, which is you know uh, able and and you say that you can you double doubling the calculation rate every 20 months. <laughs> yeah, since, since 1969, which is incredible. But uh, the other thing I did want to ask you, this is an, another criticism that I, I I read that I think has some validity, and I'd be curious as to your your response to this. He says that uh, the argument for abundance of services, because you do all you you guys do say goods and services over and over again. But there's only in this uh, this uh, criti critic's view one example of uh, services in the book, and that is your cosmetic procedures, uh, where you look at look at those and the diminishment in that. What about college education? Would that be an example of something that maybe we haven't achieved superabundance? And is that because the government's involved in providing it? I mean, uh, what what are some other services where you, you you've seen uh, a change from a time yeah, price so, perspective? So we, when we began the process, we you know we started seeing this abundance in all these commodities, and we started to ask ourselves, where can we find something that has actually grown more scarce? And we find it in 
uh, two different categories of products that have become less abundant. Mm -hmm. And those categories usually are products where the government is involved in either the supply and or the demand, or it's a product which is a status product. And the reason it's getting more expensive is because <laughs> that's why you buy it. You know, I buy a Rolex because now I can show people, look at, look at the expensive watch that I have. So those products, they're, they're marketed as being more and more expensive. Now, higher education, uh, you think about it, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go get a college degree or I'm going to get experience college. You take apart what you're actually buying there. You're buying some knowledge. You're buying some skills. You can get that from textbooks, but you're also buying this ability to network with other students and have mentors. Uh, uh, and you have this physical experience at a campus and all the social things that go with that. And that has gotten really expensive. Uh, I remember my uh, undergrad university, Boise State, when I went there, the lunchroom was like, wow, <laughs> this looks like a prison lunchroom. I was back there a couple of years ago, and it's like, wow, this thing is phenomenal. And they had climbing gyms, and they got all this stuff going on there. It's like, this costs a lot of money. And then I looked at the tuition, and it's like, yeah, it costs much more than it did when I went to school in 1980, even adjusting for inflation. So I think if you pull it, pull it apart and say, what has this fundamental knowledge and skills done? that has gone to almost zero. The cost of that is almost zero. Think about the price of, I've got this one story where I tell about uh, 1997, the cost to buy a college education, public university, $15,000. That was the same year that Sony and Samsung, I believe, introduced the first LCD flat screen TV. It was $15,000. So mm -hmm. fast forward to today. I mean, it's like $50,000 to get a degree at a public university today, four-year degree. But you can get a flat-screen 32-inch TV for 75 bucks. So you look at the price that's happened there versus the price that's happened at education, and that spread says it used to be one-to-one. -one. Now it's like one to 300. So what it suggests is that going forward, YouTube is really going to replace colleges in the sense of being – a place where you go to get knowledge and skills. Now, you're still going to have these premium experience of going to, to a physical place with a beautiful campus. I mean, I'm at a beautiful place here in Hawaii, beautiful facilities, but it's really, really expensive to give someone that experience when they're really buying this kind of experience versus knowledge. So you pull that apart and then you say, wow, it's it's gotten almost free to get knowledge today. So pretty hopeful on that. But once again, in that market, you've got this huge uh, effect on supply and demand. You have a, a supply effect with accreditation. I can't go start a college tomorrow. And you have an effect on the supply on the demand side because governments subsidize uh, with loans and grants and so forth. So those two supply and demand are moving the wrong directions if you want prices to go down. <laughs> Yeah, what a great point. I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, you're right. I mean, college education is is get yes, getting knowledge, and but it's also the experience. I, I think you're right. YouTube is the place where I go to get educated now. Like I I I just I just bought a new griddle for the backyard, and I've spent I spent the last week in the mornings watching videos on YouTube on how to use the griddle. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> and that was relatively free. So really yeah. interesting stuff. We're up against our last break and Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home in our fourth segment. But Gail, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest okay. on the soul of enterprise. We uh, really do hope that you and Marion win the Nobel prize someday for this stuff. Cause it's great <laughs> stuff. But uh, right now I want to remind our listeners that they get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com website again is the soul of enterprise where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows uh, we can also go to rate this podcast.com slash tsoe where you can guess what rate this podcast and we'd love to have you rate the podcast get, leave us a review we do read them on air from time to time but right now a word from our sponsor and my employer sage Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Gail Pooley. He's the author of Super Abundance. And Gail, I wanted to ask you, you know, we always talk about economists don't have a model for when populations decline. But we're kind of facing a, a global population decline, aren't we, with lower fertility rates? What do you think is going to happen? Well, uh, Marion actually spend, spends quite a bit of time thinking about this. I think we're, first of all, we're probably going to tap out, uh, you know, t 10 billion people. That's probably looks like where we're going to tap out, you know, 2050, 2060, somewhere in there. So we, we know the population could do this. And our, our model is, says that abundance is a function of population and freedom to innovate. 
So you can, if you can grow more people, uh, you should be able to create more abundance. But we had lots of people in China, right? <laughs> and India. And what was lacking there was a was uh, the freedom to innovate. So when you did have this opening in China where people did have a small measure of freedom, this freedom factor, suddenly they began to escape poverty. So we're, we're hopeful that this uh, freedom factor, this freedom to innovate, continues to expand around the planet. But if you have population that then declines, then your other variable <clears throat> is, is going to be a challenge. Um, Elon Musk uh, loves to say, you know, we, we don't have enough people. And why would he say that? He says, you know, we just don't have enough people uh, that uh, – because if you're looking for a genius <laughs> and it's one in a thousand uh, – you know, if you got a thousand people, you got one genius. But if you got a million people, you got a thousand times more geniuses, right? So if you're really looking for these people that can really uh, uh, be a Steve Jobs level of of innovator, you got to be in favor of more people. So we're troubled by this idea that you got to reduce the pool of people. Uh, you're going to reduce the potential that that you're going to have these people that can make this profound influence on on the rest of us for for good. So, how do we kind of turn that around? I think one of the big issues is, look, uh, young people today are. Uh, you ask young people today and about uh, family and children, and they they express this concern that oh, it's a threat to the climate. It's uh, we're going to run out, and so they've been. They've been convinced that uh, more human beings are going to be uh, a bad thing. And, and we're hopeful that people uh, say, well, let's look at the facts. What's actually happened? We go from, from a billion to eight billion people and look what happened to the planet. It got cleaner. Uh, it got richer. People got healthier. Our life expectancy extended. Human flourishing uh, grows when there are no, more people because more people mean more innovation. So um, you reduce the population size, you could reduce our ability to grow. And we kind of see that a little bit uh, when we look at countries, advanced countries. Do they continue to innovate and grow as their population slows down? It's like, uh, uh, you know, they don't experience the same kind of growth because they don't have this energy of this kind of next generation and this commitment to go forward and to grow having kids really commits you and changes your time perspective into the future. And uh, when you don't have that, it, uh, it changes kind of your incentives about what you want to do with yourself. So it, it clearly is a problem, especially in the West where these birth uh, rates have been, you know, way under replacement rates. Korea is like, they just like stop making Koreans. Korea has been this huge source of innovation. And we need more Koreans. If you want more Samsungs, you got to have more Koreans. And yeah. that's not happening. And you guys quantified this a little bit with when you talked about China's one, pol uh, one child policy from 1980 to, what was it, 2015? There would have been 400 million more Chinese. And what was the effect of that on the time pricing? Well, uh, if you go back to our to our what we found and, and so we take all this data 
and we from the data we we're, were trying to to look at patterns and we just we we found this pattern that each time you increase population by 1% time prices would fall would fall by 1%. So if you increase population by 75% uh time prices fell by 75%. And what that means is for for the time it took you to get one Unit, you now get four. It's like everything's 75% off. So you, you have 300% more abundance. So then the question is, is, well, if we had 400 more people, 400 million more people, we would have, from 1980, we would, we would have, we would have uh, increased population instead of like 72, 74%, it would have been 84%, about 10% higher. Well, if you can think of time prices falling by another 10%, it doesn't seem like much, but going from 75% to 85%, remember, uh, it goes geometric. Right. Uh, it does. It's not this linear thing. If you go 50% off, it means I get two for one. If I go 75%, it means I get four for one. 80% off, I get five for one. 90% off, I get 10 for one. So it has a geometric curve. So if you go to 85% off instead of 75% off, that's 50% higher. So the the individual uh, the individual abundance would have been 50% higher if that if that relationship is true going forward as we continue to grow population. Now at some point you say, well, everything's you know if you double population, that's 100% off. Do prices fall by 100%? Well, no, they're not going to fall by 100%, but there's going to be some relationship there. And that's why we we flip it the other way and we think about the abundance. It's like, well, well, yeah, the price fell by this much, but how much now can you get for the same amount of time? So I go from getting one, I get now four. Well, if I go one to five or one to six, my abundance, my personal abundance is having this increase. So back to this issue of, Look, if you want to have a uh, uh, if you want to have more abundance on the planet for everyone, including the poorest people on the planet that are the prime beneficiaries of innovation, it's the poor that get the most benefit, especially when we see uh, these basic commodities become more and more abundant because now they they spend less and less time working to earn the money to just buy basic Maslow's first level uh, uh, items, food, you know, clothing. Uh, I don't spend eight hours a day just working to buy my food for the day. I can spend an hour a day. That means I got seven hours to do something else. So being able to give those people on the planet more time and more resources, now they move from being just focusing on consuming to now they can move to this creative category where now they're creating. Right, um, they're beyond survival. Yeah. <laughs> well, Gail, this has been an honor. It's so great to talk to you. I uh, We're going to promote the heck out of this book. We talk about it all the time. So uh, really <laughs> thrilled to have you on. And stay with us through a live close. Ed, what do we have next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to be live at the Information Technology Alliance answering questions about the subscription economy. Awesome. I will see you in 167 hours. Sounds good. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific, 
In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>